go right into the obituaries. Darius Gray Taylor Lee, 22, passed away Sunday, February 5th, due to injuries sustained in an automobile accident. Darius was born September 27, 2000, in Des Moines, Iowa. Darius had a huge personality reserved only for the people in his inner circle. That included his family and his best friends since elementary and high school. He was the hardest working stu student at Iowa State University set to graduate this May. His work will be honored with a posthumous bachelor's degree from Iowa State in marketing and entrepreneurship. He is survived by his parents, Veronica, also known as Zika, and Ronnie Young Jr., siblings Reyes Taylor Lee, Al Alicia Young, Bonnie Young, Ronnie Young III, Robbie Young, and Mercedes Lee, nieces Stella and Emmy, grandparents Nan Lee, Dina Young, Mike Anderson, Ronnie Young Sr., and Barb Hornberger Wetchell. His favorite furry four-legged son, Remington, and numerous aunts, uncles, cousins, and other re loving relatives and many special friends. Darius was preceded in death by his grandparents, Carmen and Kelly Taylor, Vanipia Lee, and his father, Desi Lee. Funeral services will begin at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 11th, followed by a visitation until 2 p.m. to be held at Lutheran Church of the Cross, 1701 8th Street Southwest in Altoona. Celebration of life to follow the services beginning at 3 p.m. at Fireside Grill, located at 523 8th Street Southeast in Altoona. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be directed to the family to be distributed amongst numerous pet rescue charities. Con condolences may be left at hamiltonfuneralhome.com. And our my, my second obituary I'm going to read is for Mary Bradley. Mary Louise Bradley, 70, passed away peacefully on February 6, 2023, at home surrounded by family. The family will greet friends from noon to 2 p.m. on Monday, February 13th at Hamilton's Near Highland Memorial Gardens, located at 121 Northwest 60th Avenue in Des Moines. A memorial service will begin at 2 p.m. also at the funeral home. Condolences may be expressed at hamiltonfuneralhome.com. And Jim will read the rest of them. Thanks, Diane. Uh, we have a couple death notices. Uh, Shirley Farber, 87, of Winterset, and Betty Mason, 86, of Russell. Um, and then we have uh, Marge, Marjorie Marge Stillwell, 87, passed away peacefully at Every Step Cavanaugh House in Des Moines on February 1, uh, 2023. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. Monday, February 13, 2023, at McLaren's Rest Haven Chapel in West Des Moines, followed by a brief service of remembrance at 6 o'clock p.m. Burial will be at Rest Haven Cemetery at a later date. Marge was born in Eagle Grove, Iowa, and eventually moved to Des Moines before settling in West Des Moines. She was a homemaker and worked for the West Des Moines Community Schools before retiring. Marge enjoyed cooking, family get-togethers, conversations with her neighbors, listening to music, and playing solitaire on her computer. Marge is survived by her husband of 68 years, George Stillwell, 
daughter Diane Turner, sons Doug, spouse Mary Stillwell, and Scott Stillwell, daughter-in-law Sharon Stillwell, grandchildren uh, Katie Stillwell, Megan, spouse Trevor Hamilton, Matt, spouse Maisie Stillwell, and Joe Stillwell, <clears throat> uh, uh, spouse Shelby Starace, six great-grandchildren, and many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, Pearl Ritchie Meyer and Donald Ritchie, sister Dolores Doty Ritchie, brothers Berkeley Ritchie, Wesley Ritchie, and Roger Ritchie. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to Every Step Cavanaugh House, 956th Street in Des Moines, 50312. And then finally, we have Barbara Okenpau, um, 91, of Des Moines, peacefully passed away February 7, 2023, surrounded by her loving family. A visitation will be held at Isles Westover Chapel, February 13, 2023, from 4 to 7 p.m. A full obituary is posted on islescares.com. In lieu of flowers, please donate to Ramsey Village of Des Moines, Iowa. Arrangements are under the direction of Isles Westover Chapel. Thanks, Jim. That concludes our <clears throat> obituaries for today. And we're moving on to sports. Well, of course, it is wrestling time, but we still have some great, we have a lot of great uh, basketball happening. I'm going to start us off with an article about the ISU men's game that uh, is already over. It occurred a couple days ago in Morgantown, West Virginia. And this article is entitled, entitled ISU Men Stumble in the Foul-Plagued Big 12 game. And if you watch that game, you know it had a lot of fouling going on. The Iowa State men's basketball team came close to ending its four-game road losing streak, but instead slumped a game behind first place in the Big 12 Conference. The 13th-ranked Cyclones overcame a 15-point first-half deficit and led late, but were unable to outlast West Virginia in a 76-71 setback on Wednesday night. The loss put the Cyclones at 16-7 overall and 7-4 in the Big 12, one game behind Texas. Iowa State had chances to steal a win at West Virginia U Coliseum, but could not overcome foul trouble and a bruising, relentless West Virginia squad. Iowa State led 71-70 with less than two minutes to play, but two free throws from Iowa transfer Joe Trissant put the Mount Mountaineers back on top. Iowa State had a chance to retake the lead with 10 seconds left when Caleb Grill had a run out, but his layup attempt spun out. The Cyclones had the ball down three with less than 10 seconds to play, but Jaron Holmes was called for an offensive foul to end the threat. We're going to trust these guys in these situations, Iowa State coach T.J. Otzenberger said. Holmes had 18 points to lead the Cyclones while Taman Lipsy had a career-high 16 points. Grill chipped in 13 for Iowa State. Iowa State had three players foul out of a game that was at times dominated by a consistently present whistle. 
We need to be mentally tough to be able to withstand that, Otzenberger said, of the foul trouble his team endured. We need to do a great job of staying in the moment, focusing on the play that's next. We're not in control of these stoppages, and we need to make sure we're doing what we can to be mentally prepared for whatever's coming at us on that next play. The Cyclones return home Saturday to host Oklahoma State at 5 p.m. Taman Lipsy had a career night before fouling out. Lipsy had found success this season largely by being a facilitator and doing the gritty little things that make a big difference for the Cyclones. Rarely has he made a major impact with his scoring. That changed against the Mountaineers. Lipsy went 6 of 8 from the floor while scoring the first seven points of the second half en route to his career best scoring output. His previous high watermark was scoring 12 against UConn in November. Just being aggressive, Lipsy said. They like to play our shooters out on the perimeter and sort of deny them the ball, so that opened up drives for me and Jaron and others with the ball. I can learn a lot from this game. I want to come in more of command of the ball. Lipsy isn't likely to be a high scorer too often this season, but with teams loading up on Gabe Kalsher and Grill, it will be imperative for Lipsy to keep defenses honest with his own shooting. Teams have begun to play off Lipsy to help elsewhere, and if he's able to make a few threes, in parentheses, he was one of two against West Virginia, and attack the basket, he'll be able to play teams, he'll be able to make teams pay for their defensive choices. Iowa State versus West Virginia was a foul test. The game devolved into a parade of fouls to start the second half. The two teams combined to draw 12 whistles before the first media timeout at 16 minutes. West Virginia found itself in the bonus with 16 minutes, 18 seconds left in the game. In total, the two teams were called for a combined 49 fouls, 30 for Iowa State, 19 for West Virginia and shot 55 free throws, 31 for West Virginia, 24 for ISU. Iowa State was in major foul trouble for essentially the entire half. Early, we had a lot of unnecessary fouls as well, and we gave them too many points at the foul line in the second half, Otzenberger said. Everybody's got to be ready for their opportunity. You've got to be able to adjust some things playing to the strength of guys offensively and defensively. West Virginia shot 23 free throws in the second half. Iowa State attempted 16. Cyclone players Lipsy Onsen Onsier and Robert Jones fouled out. We need to be better at being the aggressor, Otzenberger said. When you play other teams that are physical, when you pressure the basketball, when you set the tone, the foul count thing seems to go your way. We didn't do that, so we had a lot of guys that were challenged with foul trouble throughout the game. Former Hawkeye Joe Tresan was a problem late for the Cyclones. Tresan, who, who transferred from Iowa after last season, was a big factor in West Virginia holding on for the victory. He made four free throws in the final minute and successfully bothered Grill on the run out with 10 seconds left. Grill anticipated contact from Tresan who backed away from the last minute as Grill missed an awkward and off-balance layup attempt. With four and a half seconds left, Trusan took a charge as Holmes looked for space to set up a three-point shot attempt. That foul, excuse me, that foul called sealed the win for West Virginia. 
Trusan was six of six from the foul line and finished with eight points. Big 12 Conference Men's Basketball Race. <clears throat> Iowa State remains in the thick of the Big 12 race as the Cyclones are just a game behind the Longhorns. But if Iowa State is ultimately going to win its first regular season title in more than two decades, it almost certainly will require another road win or two. Iowa State opened Big 12 play with wins at Oklahoma and TCU, but has not won since January 7th outside Hilton Coliseum, where they are perfect. The Cyclones' other recent road losses came at Kansas, Oklahoma State, Missouri, and Texas Tech. If the Cyclones end up a game or two behind the eventual winner, it will sting that they let very winnable road games slip through their fingers. They blew leads of 16 and 23 at Oklahoma State and Texas Tech, respectively, and had two chances to take the lead in the final 10 seconds. Given Iowa's, Iowa State was picked to finish eighth in the Big 12 before the season started, and that the Cyclones remain in excellent position for a high NCAA tournament seed and a spot in the Des Moines region falling short of a Big 12 title won't be seen as a failure, but the Cyclones have had their chances to achieve just that. Jim, what do you got for us? Uh, thanks, Diane. I am going to turn to a, an article on wrestling. Uh, uh, college and, well, in high school wrestling, we're entering that period where they're finishing up the regular season, uh, getting into uh, conference and, uh, in this case, national tournaments. Uh, so we have an uh, article written by Cody Goodwin. Uh, Cody uh, covers wrestling and high school sports for the Des Moines Register. And this is uh, concerning the University of Iowa's wrestling team. Iowa's brands forced to be creative with his lineup. Uh, four thoughts before duel against number eight, Michigan. Just two duels remain on the Iowa wrestling team's 2022-23 schedule. This Friday night against number eight, Michigan, and then next Sunday, February 19th, against number 16, Oklahoma State which means Tom Brands is having to crunch some numbers. Iowa has faced bizarre circumstances, and that's Brands' words, with injuries this year. Brands never gives specifics, but many guys, Brody Teske, uh, Rio Woods, Nelson Brands, Abe Assad, Jacob Warner, and others have missed time with various health issues. That means the program's depth has been on display. The results still look pretty good. Iowa's ranked number two by Intermat and is 13-1 overall heading into Friday's duel against Michigan, uh, which is 9-3 in their dual meets. But Brands has had to get creative with starting lineups. When we talked the day after competition to get ready for the next one, Brands said this week, you have to be ready to suit up and go, no matter who you are. Most notably, and perhaps most interestingly, Brands has enlisted his true freshman this season, a new opportunity afforded by the NCAA, which allows true freshmen and only true freshmen to wrestle five attached dates while maintaining their red shirt. Any more than five dates burns the red shirt. 
But this is where brands must now problem solve. He he listed Drake Rhodes, a true freshman from Montana, as Iowa's probate probable starter at 184 pounds for Friday's duel. If he goes, it would be his fifth attached date, meaning the next one burns his red shirt. We've got to be really, really smart and figure something out, Brands said. Brands has leaned on many of his first-year guys throughout the season. In dual meets alone, he's started Rhodes, Joel Jessaraga from Chattanooga, Carson Martinson, Army, West Point, um, Aiden Riggins, Purdue and Minnesota, Colby Franklin against Wisconsin, uh, Bradley Hill, Minnesota. They've gone a combined two and eight. Rhodes has been something of a utility man for the Hawkeyes this season. He's five and five overall against three different weight classes. At 174 in Iowa's 42-3 win over California Baptist in November, at 165 at the Soldier Salute <coughs> in, excuse me, in December, and now at 184 against Penn State, Wisconsin, and presumably against Michigan. That Brands wants to keep Rhodes in red shirts so he can have him for another four seasons says a lot about how much he values Rhodes. He appears to be a key part of the Hawkeyes' future. On Friday, Rhodes is expected to wrestle Michigan's Matt Feinsilver, who's 17-5 and this season and ranked number eight nationally by Intermat. Another tough assignment in what's become a season full of them. It's been all hands on deck, Brand said. Kirk Ferentz talks about next guy in, And that's a really good, simple philosophy that everyone can understand. And there's a lot of accountability in that philosophy. Brand's saying he needs to figure something out with regards to 184 pounds this month says, indirectly, that Abe Assad, Iowa's usual starter at 184, is clearly hurt. Assad hasn't wrestled since losing to Wisconsin's Tyler Dow three weeks ago. He's still 14-2 and two and ranked number 12 nationally by Intermat. Brands never talks specifics on injuries, but basically said Assad is hurt without outright saying it this week. With the health and where we're at it uh, there, we've got to be really, really smart. Assad made the trip and sat on the bench with the team during the Hawkeyes' 18-13 win over Minnesota last weekend. It stands to reason that Brands is holding him out until the Big Ten Championships set for March 4th and 5th in Ann Arbor, Michigan. But having a sod out obviously complicates things for Brands. Assuming Brands holds a sod out until the Big Ten Championships and Rhodes goes Friday, what does that mean for next week's duel against Oklahoma State? Well, there are a few options. Brands could dive deeper into his stable of true freshmen and and start Mickey Griffith, a Des Moines Lincoln grad who has wrestled twice this season at the Luther Open in November and the Soldier Salute in in December. He's 6-4 overall at 184. 
There's Aiden McCain, who's two and six in two competitions this year. Brands could also bump up Jude Link, who's wrestled uh, once at 174 this year, going 0-2 at the UNI Open. But those losses came to Manny Rojas, one of Iowa State's Ballyhooed prospects, and Carson Babcock, who started some for Northern Iowa this year. Perhaps Assad comes back to wrestle a match before the Big Ten tournament. That's probably the best case scenario here. Against the Cowboys, he'll likely face Travis Whitakey, who's 13-3 and and ranked number 10. That'd be an important match for NCAA seeding. Michigan hasn't wrestled its full A-team in the last few, few duels. Amin, a, a two-time All-American, has missed the last couple of duels. Both Lamer and Martin have missed time on and off this semester, too. But go ahead and circle 157 and 285 as perhaps the biggest ones for Iowa uh, this uh, weekend. Seabrack, fresh off beating one past All-American in Minnesota's Brayton Lee gets another in Michigan's Will Lewin. This will be another clash of styles as Seabrack is confident offensively and Lewin holds position well and wrestles a lot of low-scoring matches. At 285, Cassiope could really shake the Big Ten and potentially the NCAA seeds by knocking off Paris, the number one ranked heavyweight in the country. Paris is 3-0 all-time against Cassiope during their college careers, and none of them have really been that close. We'll see if Cassiope has closed the gap at all on Friday night. All right, well, we're on to football, and Iowa is working on their team for next fall. Iowa football adds Virginia linebacker Jackson via uh, transfer portal. And this is written by Kennington Lloyd Smith III the Des Moines Red, from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. On Wednesday, Iowa football added one more piece to its team during the early NCAA transfer window, and it's at a position of need. Virginia linebacker Nick Jackson announced his decision to transfer to the Hawkeyes over Oklahoma. He will graduate this spring and join Iowa in the summer as a graduate transfer. He's regarded as a four-star transfer portal player, according to 247 Sports. Jackson, a middle linebacker listed at six foot, uh, 120, six foot one, 235 pounds, was a four-year contributor and three-year starter at Virginia, where he accumulated 352 total tackles, including 100-plus tackles in each of the last three seasons. His 2022 season was his best to date, with 103 tackles, five sacks, and four pass deflections. He is entering Iowa's program with three all-ACC selection honors. Jackson is the seventh transfer portal addition for the Hawkeyes and the first defensive player. The next available window for players to enter into the NCAA transfer portal is May 1st through the 15th at the conclusion of the team's spring practice periods. 
How does Nick Jackson's commitment impact Iowa's defense? While the majority of the focus concerning Iowa's transfer portal activity has been on offense, Jackson is one of the most impactful additions to Iowa's team. No position lost more production than linebacker, than linebacker as all three Hawkeye starters from last season, who were Seth Benson at the NFL Draft, Jack Campbell, also NFL Draft, and Justin Jacobs, transferred to Oregon, are all departed. The Hawkeye defense has expectations to remain elite next season, but linebacker was the only question mark. Iowa has one clear starter at linebacker next season in rising senior Jay Higgins, who impressed last season replacing Jacobs. However, besides him, there's very little in-game experience. Higgins and fellow senior Kyle Fisher are the only upperclassmen in the linebacker room. Fisher, a strong special teams contributor, will be in the mix at outside linebacker, but the Hawkeyes desperately needed a proven college product to fortify the position group. Jackson will pair nicely with Higgins at Iowa's two main linebackers, which leaves the outside linebacker position still in question. Spring practice will be big with Jackson not arriving until summer. Last year's practice period saw Higgins ascend while starters were out with injury. There will be opportunities for the young linebackers to impress position coach Seth Wallace and stake their claim for playing, ball, for playing time in the fall. Last season, Wallace expressed excitement about what the next young group of linebackers could contribute to the defense in 2023. The young linebackers are a great group of guys, Wallace said last October. Guys that are eager and itching to do whatever they can special teams-wise because they've seen that that pattern exists over the last however many years since I've taken over as coach. The guys are paying their dues. Then when their numbers are called on, you hope they can go out there and have less anxiety than maybe somebody that's just thrown out there. All right, Jim. Thanks, Diane. Uh, and this, this weekend, it, it is Super Bowl weekend. So we have a, an article here written by Josh DeBow regarding the, the Super Bowl contest. Uh, Eagles counting on pass rush in Super Bowl. The defensive philosophy that has carried the Philadelphia Eagles to the Super Bowl is relatively simple. A deep rotation of defensive linemen provides constant pressure that makes opposing quarterbacks uncomfortable and often leads to them ending on the ground. It's always a race to the quarterback, defensive tackle Fletcher Cox said. We all look at it every week that we have to earn the right to rush the quarterback and, and guys buy into that. Few teams have gotten to the quarterback more frequently this season than the Eagles, who are closing in on the NFL's most prolific season ever when it comes to sacks. That will be the formula for the Eagles uh, 16 and, and 3 uh, that will hope to replicate on Sunday against Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs, who are also are 16 and 3. Anytime you play these great quarterbacks, you got to affect them because they can't have them out here playing seven-on-seven, seven, defensive end Brandon Graham said. The line definitely has to affect anything that goes on with the play. I know that we've got a great D-line, but we got it, got to prove it each and every week. I'm excited because we do get a task we got to achieve going against Mahomes. 
That won't be easy, even with Mahomes on a gimpy ankle. He was the best quarterback in the league this season at avoiding sacks, with only 10.2% of pressures turning into sacks, according to Pro Football Focus. Mahomes was sacked three times in his previous Super Bowl appearance two years ago against Tampa Bay when he was constantly on the run behind a banged-up line. Kansas City has bolstered the line since then, but Mahomes knows it will be difficult against the Eagles. They're on like a historic sack rate and the way they're able to get to the quarterback, Mahomes said. So everybody knows that everything starts up front. It'll be a great challenge for our offensive line to try to do what they can. Philadelphia followed up a regular season with 70 sacks, tied for the third most ever, with eight more so far in the playoffs. The 78 sacks combined in the regular season and playoffs have been topped only by the Chicago Monsters of the Midway with 82 sacks in 1984 and 80 the next season. When the Eagles benefited from a 17th regular season game, their rate of sacks is also quite impressive. They have sacked the quarterback on 11.5% of dropbacks this season for the highest rate in a season since 1989 when the Vikings did it on 12.2% of dropbacks. Being a part of pass rush where everybody gets the chance to eat That's the best thing, star defensive end Hanson Reddick said. It causes no problems. Everybody gets their chance. Everybody gets the chance to get their stats up. Everybody gets their chance to make an impact at at the end of the day. When you have a D-line like we have, it's crazy. All it takes is for one person to make a play, and then the energy amongst everybody is just rolling. Philadelphia spreads the wealth around with a record four players reaching double digits in the regular season. Reddick, 17, Javon Hargrave, 11, Josh Sweat, uh, 11, and Graham, 11. But Reddick is the one who sets the tone. He had one and a half sacks on the opening drive of a divisional round win against the Giants, and then the strip and sack that injured San Francisco quarterback Brock Purdy's elbow on the first drive in the NFC Championship game. It's been part of a fairy tale season for Reddick that will end uh, where he started his NFL career. A first-round pick by Arizona in 2017, Reddick struggled early in his career with just seven and a half sacks his first three seasons while often playing out of position as an off-ball linebacker. Reddick has put together three straight double-digit sack seasons in his final year with the Cardinals, one year in Carolina and this season in Philadelphia, where he has relished the opportunity to be back near his boyhood home in New Jersey, playing for the team he rooted for as a kid. For me, it's a dream, Reddick said. I'm getting to live Live it each and every day, which is a blessing in itself. But looking back at that, if you would have told me that this would happen back then, and I looked at you and said, I hope so. Now Reddick is looking for one final accomplishment to add to this memorable season, sacking Mahomes in a Super Bowl win. 
He's one of the quarterbacks in the league that I haven't been able to sack or haven't gotten to yet. So if I'm able to get to him and I get him in a Super Bowl, that's going to be historic for me. Thanks, Jim. And by Sunday night, we'll know how it all turns out. <laughs> Our next uh, article, AP source, 49ers uh, quarterback Purdy is set for surgery. San Francisco 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy will undergo surgery on his injured elbow later this month and should be fully recovered by training camp. A person familiar with the decision said Purdy will undergo the surgery on February 22nd to repair the torn ligament in his right elbow. The person spoke on condition of anonymity because the team didn't announce the decision. The NFL Network first reported the decision on surgery that will be performed by Dr. Keith Meister, the team physician for the Texas Rangers. Purdy tore the you know, ulnar, okay, let's start that again. Purdy tore the ulnar collateral ligament in his right elbow on the first drive of a 31-7 loss in the NFC title game to Philadelphia on January 29th. Purdy got several opinions from doctors on whether to avoid surgery and try to rehabilitate the elbow, have an internal brace procedure to repair the elbow, or undergo reconstruct reconstructive Tommy John surgery. He opted for the internal brace, which should allow him to begin a throwing program in three months and be fully cleared to practice sometime in August if everything goes as planned. Purdy went from the last pick of the draft to starter in the conference title game in an impressive rookie season for the 49ers. He won his first seven starts after stepping in for an injured Jimmy Garoppolo in week 13 before the loss to Philadelphia in the conference title game. Purdy threw for 1,374 yards with 13 touchdowns and only four interceptions in the regular season and his 108 passer rating in the regular season and playoffs was the highest ever for a rookie with at least 200 passes. Purdy will miss the off-season program, giving 2021 first-round pick Trey Lance time to work with the first-team offense. Lance began this past season as the starter before breaking his ankle in Week 2. He is expected to be cleared for practice before the start of the off-season program. Thanks, Diane, for that update, and uh, I like to always highlight the uh, Registers Athletes of the Week, uh, high school athletes, uh, give some recognition there. This is written by Joel Randleman of the Des Moines Register. Uh, Ellsbury Swainpole, named Registers Athletes of the Week. South Tama girls wrestler Maylee Ellsbury and Ankeny boys swimmer. Lance Swainpool are the Des Moines Register Athletes of the Week for January 30th to February 5th. Ellsbury dominated the voting for Female Athlete of the Week. She received 68.4% of the vote, 10,133, to top Southeast Polk girls wrestler Skylar Slade, who picked up 30.1%, uh, or 4,463 votes. Both wrestlers, wrestlers won state championships at the girls' state wrestling meet at the Extreme Arena last week. Ellsbury pulled off an upset at 135 pounds by claiming a state championship 
as the number three seed. She went 5-0 and and knocked off number two seed, Dakota Whitman of Independence, by a 5-2 decision in the semifinals, and number one seed, Alexis Ross of Fort Dodge, in a 2-0 battle during the championship match. She finished the season at 46 wins and just one loss. Swainpool won the Male Athlete of the Week voting by receiving 61.9% of the vote. Um, and uh, Waverly Shellrock wrestler Jake Walker was runner-up with 21.8% of the vote. Swainpool qualified for the Boys State Swimming Meet in four events during the district meet in, in Ames on Saturday. Swainpool swam the fastest qualifying times in the state for the 50-yard freestyle and 100-yard butterfly at the district meet. He completed the freestyle in 21 seconds flat and the butterfly at 48.75 seconds. <coughs> Excuse me. He also helped Ankeny win the 200 freestyle relay with the fourth fastest qualifying time at uh, 1 minute 27 seconds um, and, and take second in the 400 freestyle relay with the sixth best qualifying time at 3 minutes uh, 12.3 seconds. Thanks, Jim. We're going to switch out of sports and into some uh, general news. My next article, Residents Return Home After Derailment. And this is from East Palestine, Ohio. Some are still weary after the toxic plume. Hours after being told she could go home for the first time since a train hauling chemicals derailed and later sent up a toxic plume near the Pennsylvania state line, Melissa Henry nervously walked inside her house. First, she washed her sheets and pillowcases then she started throwing out everything left on her kitchen counters. She opened all of her windows, too, hoping to air out whatever might have seeped inside while fearful of the air outside, too. Was that the right thing to do or not? You just don't know, she said Thursday. It was a nightmare. It still is. Residents forced to evacuate the Ohio village of East Palestine began trickling home after being told Wednesday that hundreds of air samples showed no dangerous levels of toxins following the controlled release and burn of five tankers that were among nearly 50 cars that derailed last Friday. Some, including Henry, came back within the first few hours while others were waiting to see the results of air sampling inside their homes before returning. I was a nervous freaking wreck last night, she said. My kids are here and that's my biggest concern. Henry and her two boys had stayed with her parents nearly five days while waiting for the derailment to be cleaned up. She left on Saturday before the mandatory evacuations were ordered because her youngest son's eyes turned red as tomato and he was coughing a lot, she said. Coming, since coming home, she and the boys had been washing clothes, changing filters in the furnace, and scrubbing down just about everything. I don't know if it's going to work, but we have to do something, she said. Mayor Trent Conaway acknowledged people remain frustrated by lingering odors and promised the village is not just taking the word of rail operator Norfolk, Norfolk Southern Railway and has Environmental Protection Agency representatives involved in the air testing. The village's drinking water system is being tested daily and is safe, he said. 
The mayor expressed frustration that trains started running through the area again right after the evacuation order was lifted and said it was sooner than he had expected. He said his primary concern is his residents and their health, and he promised to hold Norfolk Southern accountable. This isn't going to get swept under the rug. I'm not going to be the country bumpkin that gets, you know, talked over by a big corporation, Conway said. We're going to hold their feet to the fire. They're going to do what they said they're going to do, and they're going to protect the people of this town. About 300 residents or excuse me, about 300 requests for air testing in homes have been received so far, Columbia County EMA Director Peggy Clark said. The testing takes half hour for each home and is being handled by four teams working 10 hours a day, she said. James Justice of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency said on Wednesday it was unlikely there would be any dangerous levels of toxins inside any homes or businesses based on readings from air monitors around the community. Schools in East Palestine, which were closed all week because of the derailment, tentatively planned to reopen on Monday, but will remain closed this week to deep clean buildings and have HVAC systems inspected. Mallory Burkett, who lives just outside the area where residents were forced to leave but decided to evacuate on her own, said it was strange, a strange feeling to return. Nobody really knows what this is going to do, Burkett said. Ten years from now is when we'll really know. Jim, what do you got for us? Well, anyone who uh, is my age or so remembers Bert Bacharach. Um, a versatile hit maker traversed John Ray's. Uh, this written by Kristen McGrath um, of the USA Today. For half a century, Burt Bacharach composed songs for Dionne Warwick, Dusty Springfield, Tom Jones, and Aretha Franklin, and for the millions of fans who still sing along. The prolific hit maker behind Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, Wishing and Hopin', a house is not a home, and that's what friends are for. Died Wednesday. He was 94. Bacharach died at home in Los Angeles of natural causes, publicist Tina Brossom said Thursday. Born May 12, 1928, in Kansas City, Missouri, Bacharach began playing piano at his mother's insistence. His love for music grew, however, while he was a teen living in Queens, New York, where he had access to the nightclubs where jazz greats Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker performed. After completing his formal music education at McGill University in Montreal, the Mann's School of Music in New York City, and the Music Academy of the West in Montecito, California, Bacharach served in the Army between 1950 and 1952 as a pianist for the Officers Club. Soon after being discharged, Bacharach began playing with singers and musicians he met in nightclubs. The songs he was hearing from his uh, contemporaries were surprisingly simple, and he figured he could write songs like them. Bacharach returned to New York to begin honing his signature style, a mix of pop, rock, and Latin influences that featured syncopated rhythms, frequent key changes, and dramatic climaxes. 
I knew I was doing things different, but at the same time, I was doing things that were very natural for me, he told popentertainment.com in 2006. I wasn't trying to break any rules, but I wrote the way I heard things. In 1957, Bacharach began his legendary partnership with songwriter Hal David. The duo's first songs, The Story of My Life, recorded by Marty Robbins, and Magic Moments, recorded by Perry Como, were hits. Bacharach toured with Marlena Dietrich as her musical director in the late 1950s and early 60s. He and David continued to churn out hits, such as the Gene Pitney recorded tunes, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, and Only Love Can Break a Heart, and a string of hits with Warwick, such as 1962's Don't Make Me Over and 1967's Say a Little Prayer. Bacharach's influence touched movies as well. He composed theme songs for What's New Pussycat and Elfie, both of which were nominated for Academy Awards. He and David received another Oscar nod for The Look of Love, as sung by Dusty Springfield for Casino Royale, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, 1969, earned Bacharach a Grammy and an Oscar. In the decades that followed, Bacharach racked up more than 70 top 40 singles in the U.S., and six Grammys, including a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2008. He even expanded his legacy to a new generation with a cameo in the film Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, an appearance on American Idol in 2006, and um, collaborations with such artists as Dr. Dre, Elvis Costello, and Rufus Wainwright. Bacharach was married four times, including to actress Angie Dickinson and songwriter Carol Bayer Sager. He had four children, daughter Nikki with Dickinson, son Christopher with Sager, and son Oliver and daughter Raleigh with fourth wife Jean Hansen. In 2007, Nick, uh, Nikki, who had gone undiagnosed with Asperger's died by suicide at the age of 40. Years later, Bacharach scored A Boy Called Poe, a film called a young, uh, about a young widower and a dad raising a son with autism as a tribute to his late daughter. It marked his first original score in 17 years. In 2020, Bacharach slowed, showed the world his creativity hadn't stopped at 92 with a new collaboration with Nashville, Tennessee singer-songwriter Daniel Tashian. They released a five-song EP entitled Blue Umbrella in July. Despite being separated by two time zones and a couple of generations that continued to write music together, including a tune called Quiet Place. The EP was Bacharach's first album in 15 years, and he was glad to keep busy during the coronavirus, uh, coronavirus pandemic. In these times, it's like a lifesaver, Bacharach said. Thanks, Jim. Our next article is about a Clive teen. 
How a Clive Teen is doing on Kids Baking Championship on the Food Network. Clive Teen Nash Rowe Kids Baking Championship journey had a bittersweet ending. The metro area eighth grader who operates local home bakery Nash's Confection was eliminated on the Food Network show by judges Duff Goldman of Ace of Cakes fame and sitcom star Valerie Bertinelli following a difficult cream puff cake team challenge. On the January 30th episode, he landed in the bottom two, but survived an elimination. Roe was among 12 contestants on the small business-themed 11th season of the highly rated Food Network competition. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to even be able to step into the kitchen and granted to make it to week seven, so I mean, it's pretty crazy, Roe said in a confessional following his exit. Roe recently held a January 21st pop-up event at the Waukee High V location located at 1005 Hickman Road and sold out of his sweet treats in just 20 minutes. The Row creator will host a cookie-inspired cupcake class on February 25th at 2 p.m. held in the kitchen on the Iowa State Fairgrounds for kids aged 7 to 15. So that's pretty cool. I've got one more uh, short article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a shortened version of it uh, again about food. Chick-fil-A, they're unveiling its cauliflower sandwich. Chick-fil-A's newest sandwich looks just like its original, but it sure doesn't taste like it. On Monday, the Atlanta-based restaurant change will debut a cauliflower sandwich in three different markets. It's the company's first plant-forward entree. We're committed to chicken and chicken is the hero, said Leslie Nestledge, director of menu and packaging for Chick-fil-A. But it was becoming more and more prevalent that customers really want to find ways to increase vegetables in their diet. Customers already can order salads and other items without chicken, but Chef, Tracy, but Chef Stuart Tracy, the senior lead culinary developer for Chick-fil-A, told USA Today that we wanted it to be a purpose-built entree that was plant-forward. So USA Today was invited to Chick-fil-A's test kitchen to try out the new sandwich, and here's what customers can, can expect. What is Chick-fil-A's new sandwich made of? Well, the Chick-fil-A cauliflower sandwich may look like a chicken sandwich, down to the same seasoned breading, two pickle slices and a toasted bun, but one bite, and it's clear the star of this sandwich is the cauliflower, which is filleted and marinated in a mild buffalo-style sauce before being hand-breaded and pressure-cooked to a crispy finish. And what makes this sandwich different? Unlike KFC's Beyond Fried Chicken and Burger King's Impossible Whopper, which feature plant-based meat substitutes, this sandwich embraces the whole plant which both Tracy and Nestledge say consumers in focus groups requested. Resoundingly, over and over again, they were like, hey, we need it to be identifiable as a vegetable. Like, I don't want to look at it and wonder what's it made of. He handcrafted the recipe, leaning on his background of fine farm-to-table dining. We didn't know if we necessarily wanted to be similar to the chicken experience or the experience of eating a chicken sandwich, but we knew it had to taste like Chick-fil-A, he said. Why cauliflower? 
the Chick-fil-A explored dozens of plant-centered concepts, including whole mushroom calves and fried green tomatoes before honing in on cauliflower. This was the sandwich that customers absolutely fell in love with, and it scored heads and shoulders above anything else. So next time you go to Chick-fil-A and you want to try out a vegetable entree, there you go. And it's time for Dear Abby. And I will read the letter. Jim's going to give Abby's response. So here we go. We've got uh, three letters today. A stranger's revelation about DNA test rocks her world. Dear Abby, I had pretty much an ideal childhood. My parents had never had issues that I ever saw. We went to church every Sunday, gathered with family often, etc. I'm now grown and my parents are in their mid-80s. Out of the blue, I got a message on social media from a woman who says she's my father's daughter from when he was 17 years old, before he met my mom. She found out through DNA testing. She is very nice about whether I tell my parents about her. Their health is beginning to deteriorate, and I don't want to stress them more than they can handle. At the same time, I don't know if it's right for me to withhold this information from my dad. I feel so alone in making this choice. It's signed, Secret Holder. And Abby says, Dear Secret Holder, your father may be unaware that he fathered a child at 17. Back then, an out-of-wedlock pregnancy was sometimes kept secret and the baby placed for adoption. He should be given the information privately so he can decide if he would like to meet his daughter and whether your mother needs to know. Dear Abby, my fiancé and I began dating two and a half years ago. We are in our late 50s. We moved in together four months ago and took out an equity loan for improvements on the house. Until we moved in, we were planning our future together. Once we moved in, however, everything changed. Two months later, she came to me saying, something is not right. She says she loves me, she's attracted to me, and doesn't want me to leave. She says I treat her like she's never been treated before, and I'm so good to her. These are her words but I feel like I have been put into the friend zone. This usually happens after a couple of dates, not years. It's tearing her up because she doesn't want to feel this way and it has me stumped. Is it cold feet? Signed, Bad Change. Dear Bad Change, I don't know, you don't know, and it is possible that she can't identify what's wrong either. Do not procrastinate. Get a referral to a licensed marriage and family therapist for premarital counseling. If the two of you do this, whatever is bothering her will be revealed. If she refuses to go, seek counseling without her. I hope there is no prepayment penalty on that loan. And our last letter. Dear Abby, I'm a, a friendly person who can get along with most everyone. I am petite in height. Four foot eight, to be exact. Recently, while my husband and I were at a social gathering, one of the male guests approached me and commented, Who let a child in here? I was not only hurt, but I was also offended at his rudeness. My husband is much taller than I am, and he has never mistaken me for a child. Any thoughts? Signed, Tiny, but a true adult. 
And Abby writes, Dear Tiny, was the guest who said it drunk? I can't otherwise account for his egregious breach of etiquette in making a comment about the appearance of another guest at the gathering. I hope you ignored his tasteless comment. What a nitwit. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love Abby. (laughs) All right, we have reached the end of our session this morning. Just a quick recap on the weather. Today's high will be 38 degrees, low 29 tonight, and plenty of sunshine. The winds are going to be out of the northwest, 7 to 14 miles an hour. And that concludes the reading of the Des Moines Register for Friday, February 10th, 2023. I'm Diane McElroy, and my partner at the microphone has been Jim Huffman. Earlier, you heard Deanna and Rachel. You can access IRIS programs on any computer, smartphone, mobile device, or smart speaker, like the Amazon Echo or Google Home. If you would like to learn more, just give us a call at 243-6833, toll-free at 1-877-404-4747, or check out our website, iowaradioreading.org. A special thanks to our broadcast partners, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and our music partner, bensound.com. Most of all, thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.